You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. And before we get into this week's episode even remotely, you all should know that this is not for the faint of heart. Trigger warning, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in this. We've got murder, torture, incest, rape, more murder... And general, just shitty things. Just lots of bad. So, if if you are easily offended uh, or have a very soft stomach, might want to skip this one. Otherwise, hi and welcome! So many things to talk about before we get on to what's happening this week. Oh, that really hurt my throat. And my head. If you have not been keeping up with my socials, uh, that's, oh my god, how pretentious does that sound, doesn't it? If you haven't been keeping up with my socials, uh, I'm I'm quite unwell. I'm actually currently having a little bit of a different setup to what I normally do for recording, as I am wrapped up in the armchair that I usually read my kids' bedtime stories in, because I'm that parent. <laughs> And now, children, it's time to read Danny, Champion of the World. So yeah, I'm in the armchair in the kids' bedroom with the laptop and the mic and blankets and my son's Grogu cushion to rest my back upon because I'm old and broken. So that's what's happening. But just because I'm in excruciating pain and I feel like my brain is going to slosh out my head any moment and, you know, I still can't eat solid food. But it's fine, because what we have here is we have optimism, and we have nine days from day of release, because this comes out on the 10th of October, the 10th of the 10th, we have nine days to get our votes in. For me, (laughs) for the Listener's Choice and the Irish Podcast Awards. Now, you do not have to be Irish to vote, or live in Ireland to vote. You just have to vote. So there's a link here in the description down below, you click on it. 
you type in who did what now, not who did what, because apparently there's also a podcast called Who Did What, and I feel targeted. So go on, type me in, and then you put in your email address, and then you have to click the response in the email to make sure they're not um like a bunch of people voting over and over again. It was really funny though because um <laughs> a friend of mine was like, I'm gonna look at my old MSN email from the nineties and I was like, What? <laughs> You've got mail. Oh my goodness, just like people digging out their old email addresses <laughs> to vote, which is the funniest thing. It was like my pal's like, I emailed from all my alts. I did it. I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate everyone who votes me. It's absolutely amazing. Just like, segue, I appreciate everybody who leaves me five-star reviews. Which, honestly, when I'm feeling this bad, it's so nice to, like, click on and be like, Katie tells history in a way that's not shit. Which is lovely. I love to hear it. I love to hear it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, like, my favourite, um, one of my favourite, like, compliments I ever got on, like, TikTok was, like, you're like the horrible histories of TikTok, which honestly, pretty big compliment to be honest. And um, other news, I have one more news, one more news. I got two more newses, <laughs> two more news. Um, one is that I am doing my first Dublin gig. It's my only Dublin gig so far. And I think it's gonna be the only gig I'm gonna get to do this side of Christmas. So. October 22nd, that's a Sunday, at 8pm, I'm going to be supported by the amazing Ali O'Rourke. She is fabulous and this all came about because I insulted her on the streets of Edinburgh. <laughs> but yeah, so that's my opening act. She's amazing. She opened for Jonathan Van Ness. She's just fucking awesome. And so we're going to be, we're going to be, well, she's going to open for me, but I'm doing a live podcast uh, at hysteria at Cheney in Dublin so tickets there's not many left as far as I know but you should just you should come it'll be great we can chat after uh I don't know if I'm gonna have any merch at this because like that's a lot to organize in a short space of time and I'm so sick I'm so very sick but yeah uh, I'm looking forward to have everybody there and my other news is uh, for my kids, actually, <laughs> um, because um, I've been doing like bits and pieces with the kids after school, because like by the time we get home, it's like nearly eight o'clock, so it's it's a long day for them, and um, we've been doing our reading, our English, and our Irish. So my little girl, she won Gaelicorna Shachtana, so she was like the Irish speaker of the week, like this week in school, and I was like, yes, baby practicing's working especially considering like we're the same dialect like unlike our dad who's just I mean one is from awfully so that's already a thing but like even if he could speak Irish like it's the wrong dialect so it's not it's not great it'll be handy for her when she has to do like the, the Irish exam but not now and um my son and I have started making stop motion animations using Star Wars Lego and I've got him storyboarding out things right now um, to help him with his grip and he is obsessed with this Death Star 
But as far as I can tell, it is out, it's out of commission. It's out of stock. It is out of whatever the toy version of out of print is. It's that. And that's what that is. So I might have to write a very passionate letter to Lego. <laughs> and be like, please, it's the only thing he's asked Santa for. <laughs> ah, but anyway, I'll figure that out. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what your jibber jabber in fact me. In fact, you I will, but first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are An Examination of the Life and Trial of Elizabeth Battery by Dr. Uma Sadetsky Cardos. Countess Dracula The Life and Times of the Blood Countess Elizabeth Bathory by Tony Thorne. Elizabeth Bathory, a true story by Alexandra Bartosowicz. Heroine of Horror. The life and work of Elizabeth Bathory in Letters, Testimonies and Fantasy Games by Michael Farron Infamous Lady The True Story of Countess Elizabeth Bathory by Kimberly Craft The Guinness Book of Records The Symbolic Construction of the Monstrous The Elizabeth Bathory Story by Laszlo Curti And of course we have our favourites History.com and Biography.com I use it uncomfortably. Good. Then let's begin. So at the end of September, I posted like a little Q&A on my Instagram and on my TikTok. Basically going, hey, is there anything you want me to cover like through October? Anything spooky or creepy or dark from history? And I think every second person requested Elizabeth Bathory. Elizabeth Bathory, Blood Countess, Female Dracula, like one way or the other, they were referring to Elizabeth Bathory. And uh, my mouth is still swollen, so I'm very sorry that my pronunciation in this is probably going to be worse than normal. Um, I have I have been practicing, so you're going to have to forgive me. My mouth still hasn't gone back to where it should be, so I'm probably going to bugger this up quite a bit. But uh, as as many of you know, uh, one, I have a thing about calling people by their actual fucking names. We all know my opinions on Grania O'Malley. We all know what it is. You call her Grace, you're fucking trash. You're trash, you're trash, you're trash, you're trash. Your podcast is trash, your book is trash, your gen is trash. I don't give a fuck, it's trash. Um, I actually forgot that I ranted about this in the first time around. Which is the second point I'm going to make is, I already did this episode. This is a redux. Which I'm quite happy to do because the audio the first time, absolutely shocking. You know how they say, like, you know, you always have to start somewhere. And uh, I did. So, yeah, I love when people come to listen to the podcast. Because it's great. But don't start at the beginning. Because the beginning is shit. It's, It's so bad. Like, the audio was bad. And I was even listening to, like, my old episode to see, like, was there something I covered that wasn't in my notes? Because, you know, I tangent. And I was like, oh, no, I didn't even finish this sentence. Like, I would be saying something and then jump off into another one. And, yeah, loads of people requested that I talk about Elizabeth Bathory, Elizabeth, and I have already done that. But I have also told people not to listen to my old shit. So that's on me. 
So I kind of have to do a redux of like the old stuff and I, I wanted to get people new things but uh, y'all wanted this. So we're going to talk about Elizabeth Bathory, the most prolific female serial killer as the legend suggests. That being said, you know if I'm talking about it, the things generally are not quite as they seem. And now we have gone into the soft voice. Do you like that? The soft voice. <laughs> this is easier for me right now. I must try not to cough. It's difficult, but we're going to get through. You may know her as Elizabeth Bathory, the Blood Countess. Who in the Guinness Book of World Records is listed as the most prolific female serial killer? Because... Not only did she hunt down the peasantry and the nobility alike, she would capture them, torture them, ensanguinate them, and use the blood that they drained from their bodies to fill her bath, so that she may bathe in it, performing her occult rituals and regaining her youth by soaking her skin and the blood of the innocent. Except, one small thing, um, it's bollocks. It's absolute bullshit. And I am here to share with you why Elizabeth Bathory was not the horror that we have come to know her as, but the true terror lies in the world that surrounded her and what created this legend to begin with. And you know what? I'm going to fucking say it. Elizabeth Bathory was a victim of the patriarchy. So let's crack this case open and let me tell you the true tale of Elizabeth Bathory. Now let's start at the beginning, shall we? And if you have been listening for a long time, you'll know that generally women from the past even noble women, we generally don't have um, much information about them, except, you know, that they were born and they got married to someone, usually. But we actually have a birthday for Elizabeth. We do. She was born on the 7th of August, 1560, in Nürburgring in Royal Hungary. And this is on the family estate. And she is born to... Baron George the Sixth Bathory of Exed and Baroness Anna Bathory. So they're both Batheries. Now remember this whole thing about royalty and nobility, like family trees being a wreath? Now this just keeps repeating. It's just history repeating. So yeah, her her family are noble up the wazoo like there are so many of them so like Elizabeth her uncle is the king of Poland the grand duke of Lithuania and the prince of Transylvania like I said they're not just noble they're noble noble and I think at some point her older brother Istvan was the judge royal of the kingdom of Hungary for like Nearly 20 years or so. 
And one more thing really about the Batheries in general is that they're Calvinist Protestants. Now, in this kind of area in Europe, you know, you're generally, you know, Catholic or you're like Orthodox Christian. You know, there's not a lot of just, you know, Protestantism like down this vein, but they were. And uh, yeah, that, that probably wasn't the best considering the area they're from kind of ended up, well, oh, how to put this, weird. But anyway, back to Elizabeth. So her childhood, now again, surprisingly, I don't know much about that because women in the past, not really a lot there. Back to Elizabeth though, now we don't know a lot about her childhood, again, being a female in the past kind of has its own issues, but also not the best documented. Yeah, yeah. So we do know a couple things about her childhood. We know that she was raised Calvinist. We know that she was well educated and that she had a falling sickness. So we're going to take this in turns. Now I already mentioned the whole religion thing. You know, religion is kind of an issue in general, in history, and even now, right now, in the world. Because we can't just get over it. Nope. But yeah, she also has this very typical like European education. So you'd see this a lot with even like Catherine of Aragon in Spain and Henry VIII. They were given this sort of humanist, very very well-rounded education like the men and the women the boys and the girls I should say they were all like trained well because you didn't want a stupid kid because you didn't want things to get messed up for you when you were doing alliances and whatnot so yeah you didn't you didn't want that like if you're entertaining dignitaries and people from other countries you do not want to embarrass yourself and you certainly don't want your children to embarrass you. So yeah, through her schooling, um, Elizabeth learns Latin, Hungarian, German, Greek. And that's just the languages. She's a filthy wee polyglot. But yeah, she also learns um, arithmetic. So she learns math, which is good. Because everybody should have like a basic understanding of math. Just even girl math at this point. Um just a bit of it. So yeah, she's well educated. She has to be. She's a high-ranking noblewoman in a very tumultuous kind of zone. And yeah, she's, she has, they call it falling sickness, right? And modern physicians, some agree, some don't, because, you know, when you're getting descriptions of things from the past, some things are phrased odd or whatever. Um, but the general prevailing theory is she had a form of epilepsy. Because they, they describe what seems to be seizures, right? So yeah, the prevailing theory is that it's some form of epilepsy. And fun fact, a treatment at the time 
during this medieval era for epilepsy was to take the blood of someone who, you know, did not have epilepsy and you would rub that blood onto the lips of someone who did have epilepsy because it was supposed to, um, I don't know, cure or the falling sickness, pass on good non-epileptic germs. I, I, I don't know. I d- I'm not a ye olde time physician. I don't know what they were thinking, but they thought this should help. Fuck it, why not? I mean, yeah, I I guess you you go do the oldie medicine stuff, wipe some blood on your lips. Like, does it have to be a specific type of blood? Like, whose blood would they be using? Do they have to be her age? Or like the age of the patient? Or could they just be like anybody's blood? Like, what are the rules? And this, if anybody knows this, Tweet me, DM me, fill me in on this information. I must know. Anyway, in 1573, when she's 13, she is betrothed to Count Ferenc Nadazde, who is five years older than she is. So the Nadazdes, uh, they are a very wealthy family and they own quite a lot of Hungary, actually. They own quite a lot of Hungary. And the Batheries, they own quite a lot of Transylvania. So they both have a lot of land, a lot of money, and a lot of power. Now, the Batheries, they are actually a higher social rank than the Nadazdes. So her side is much higher up than his. So her social rank is higher than his. Now, they are betrothed, they're engaged, they are to be wed. And although there is this commitment, there is this agreement, because that's what this is. This is a political alliance. It's a financial agreement. This is just, you know, medieval royal marriages. Because, yeah, families marrying into each other, it's all to ensure, like, political stability, social growth, so on and so forth. And so, Elizabeth and Ferenc, they get married two years later. Now, She's young and this is a thing people forget about the medieval times is they think that just because like royals and nobility they arranged these marriages young they didn't necessarily want them out like boinking like this wasn't part of the thing it was more to secure it than it was to start procreating you know that wasn't on the cards because you know generally They had a basic understanding that 13-year-olds should not be impregnated and give birth because they're still basically children. Okay? It's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's an alliance thing. But anyway, they get married two years later. In 1575. And he's, you know, he wants to give her a good wedding gift because, you know, you have to. And, you know... Does he go for, like, some jewellery? Spaces from across the continents? No. He thinks, you know what girls love? Girls love castles. We do. We fucking love castles. And so, as a wedding gift, he gives her the castle of Chaita. 
But he doesn't just stop at a bloody castle. Oh no. He also provides her with, like, a bunch of houses and 17, 17 villages that were in this sort of area. So he gives her this big chunk of Hungary. Like, now it's, um, like, modern-day Slovakia. And I think the castle is, uh, it has a different name in Slovakian, which is Chaktice. Which I would apologise for um, if I have pronounced that really badly. <laughs> Please forgive me. But yeah, not bad for a wedding gift, I don't think. Couple of villages, you know, few old tracks of land, a castle. But yeah, their wedding day is... Wow, it is the highlight of the season. Because, you know, they're really fucking noble. Again, it's it's a wreath, you know what I mean? And so, it is like such a big deal that they had four and a half thousand guests at their wedding. Again, all from like the top nobility, the royals. And it is just like the tip top of like Transylvanian, Hungarian, nobility, society royalty it's just the whole shebang you know what i mean it's like the event of the year it's like the thing to go to but yeah remember how i said like she outranked him like socially so because she's like in the higher part of the hierarchy she keeps her name and he just kind of adds her name onto his so like he just kind of claims that but yeah, he's he's like a late teenager at this point. And not long after they're married, Ferenc, he gets the fuck out of Dodge because he has to go and uh, continue his studies. And like, he's he's not really around too much, which is not unusual for marriages at the time. You know, she's got her only castle over there in Hungary. He is, you know, doing his thing. He's away at college. It's fine. And then he gets a job. <laughs> Effectively, he's like, yeah, away. Because, yeah, when he actually completes his studies, he is appointed the chief commander of the Hungarian troops for King Matthias II. As it turns out, Ferenc here, he is an absolute fucking monster on the battlefield. Like, he ends up with the moniker, the Black Knight of Hungary, which is good, you know, for Hungary because they're all fighting the Ottomans and he is just on his way slinging a sword at the Ottomans and maybe not a sword an axe a pike I don't know a pike just does not seem noble enough you know mace maybe mace seems awkward does that not seem like an awkward like tool for battle I feel like a double-bladed axe is just like a very manageable weapon for a strong, athletic man of nobility. But that's not the point. The point is, back home, Elizabeth is uh, doing her thing because he's, you know, away, you know, living his best life. So, because he's away doing his fighting, this is all part of the par for her. So, from the age of 15... She's ruling. 
So she's ruling these estates and villages and these huge tracts of land and she's managing all of Firenze's holdings. Which, as it turns out, are really bloody vast. Because she's managing business affairs and all of these states and like during the long war she's providing medical care. She's defending these areas because the area in which um, Chaitya is, it's very strategic because it's the trade route to Vienna. So this is an area which is kind of under attack a lot. It's kind of in demand. It's a high value area. And I feel like I should explain this a little about Hungary in general. So well, today it's like modern day Slovakia, but Transylvania and Hungary, kind of in this time period, it is, it's, I mean, it's a little bit confusing because it's, it's a strange, semi-independent kind of state, kind of, because this sort of chunk of of area that the Bathory's own especially. I don't know if you know much about complicated European political structures and conflicts, but geography as we know it, and um, we kind of see it as specific borders of land mass. Whereas in the medieval period, things would change depending on, the boundaries should change depending on sort of political allegiances, alliances, religious areas, like they would all come into it. So like Transylvania itself, it is like sometimes part of Hungary, sometimes part of the Holy Roman Empire. Remember that whole thing about Calvinist Protestantism? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's also its own little independent like thing. And then, of course, you've got Ottomans who are always trying to, like, uh, take control of it. So, yeah, it's kind of a wobbly-wobbly, you know, moving about a bit. The lines are constantly changing. And, again, because Elizabeth is sort of connected to this and also her area in Hungary, there's a lot going on there. And parts of it are basically getting raided quite a lot. So she is consistently taking charge. And again, from the age of 15, let's not forget that. She is managing an area, managing the people and protecting it while it is consistently under threat. Especially this very strategic trade route. And the Ottomans, they're coming in and raiding and... Chaitya, it's constantly being plundered. And then you've got Sarvar, which is like in worse peril because it is right on the border between Royal Hungary and Ottoman-occupied Hungary. So not only is she having to like manage his estates, like she's officially charged with managing these estates. So she's doing that. And she's involved in all of these grandiose, massive matters, she's also intervening in the lives of everyday women. 
So she is, and so we have these documented events where she is supporting women whose husbands have been kidnapped by Ottomans. She's providing aid. So you've got medical aid, financial aid, food aid. Like she's coming in on all fronts. Because, you know, these women, like men are at this point the main breadwinner, right? Quite literally for some of them. And they're not there anymore. So they're lacking all of these forms of protection. And that's where Elizabeth steps in. And then we have this incident, which I think is a testament to the type of person Elzebeth is. Which we'll get back to right after this break. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we are back. This woman comes to her and she comes to her on behalf of her daughter this woman comes pleading to Elizabeth because her daughter has been raped and has been impregnated and basically Elizabeth she steps in and she gives this this woman her daughter she gives the daughter agency and she says you know what you're okay I'm paraphrasing, you're okay, you're not like a fallen woman. This is not your fault. And she supports her and she lets her know that she is provided for and cared for. Like she's not going to be shame walked in the street or thrown out in the gutter. Like she's okay. But yeah, this is what Elizabeth Bathory is doing. She is managing estates, defending castles, running hospitals, protecting the lives of the innocents. You know, like all evil blood countesses do. My, what a vicious bitch she is. So throughout this time, Elizabeth does see her husband from time to time, generally long enough to get her knocked up. So they have five kids in total. But I think only three survive into adulthood. 
So yeah, while she's doing all this other stuff, she also has to raise her children. Now, she wouldn't raise them in what we would see as the traditional raising of children, because, you know, there would be, like, um, teachers and scholars and uh, maids and nursemaids and everything else, like, master of sword and all that kind of thing. There would be people to do this stuff. But something Elizabeth would have done, being a lady in the nobility, especially in Europe in the time, because she had a court and members of the court who would send their daughters to her, like noble girls and young women. So they would send them there to kind of like, best way I can describe it is sort of like a finishing school. Um, but this is again really common within the nobility. So you would send your kid off to someone else, like the lord or lady of the realm, and then they would send their kid somewhere else. And, you know, it's kind of a big deal to have someone of great nobility staying with you because, you know, it really helps your social rank, but it also helped build, like, these political alliances. It also meant that if you had someone's kid... You know, they were less likely to, you know, attack you and usurp your power and whatnot. You know what I mean? I mean, you hope they wouldn't put their child's life at risk, but <laughs> it's practically medieval. Anyway, that's how alliances were made. So, teenage daughters of noble families would be sent to Elizabeth's court. And they would go finish their education and learn courtly manners. They would learn to be functioning ladies of noble society. You know, they would be under the care of Elizabeth who would teach them how to be proper young ladies. And a part of this as well is she would make sure that they were protected and they were chaste. And so they would be ready for husbands. So they could be, you know, offered. Offered is a bad way of saying it, but technically yes, to like decent members of the court because if you were part of Elizabeth's court because she was such a high-ranking noble like your chances of marrying up or at least marrying well like your chances are much higher there it's gonna raise your eligibility levels to find a high-ranking husband you know and so at some point during this era when Ferenc is away fighting some other war. I don't know. He's always fighting wars. There is this epidemic just like sweeping through the nation. And this disease has an outbreak at court. Now odds are it's sweating sickness. Or something to that effect. Like there's not a lot of information on what it is. But I feel like it's... So a small group of these girls from the nobility... They get sick and they die. And Elizabeth, she returns the bodies to the family so they can have, you know, a proper burial. You know, a Christian burial. And so she ensures the bodies are sent back to the families. And this is the only documented case we have of young girls, women dying at her court. And so the families of these girls... They very much agreed and believed that the girls passed away from this illness. 
So much so that one mother goes so far as to provide a sworn statement to a notary saying that her daughter died of the sickness and that it's not the fault of the Countess and that she did everything in her power to help them. So this is still while a war is going on, you know, and Elizabeth, she is running the whole shebang and she's running these estates and she's running them so well in fact that these estates are incredibly wealthy she has what i like to call fuck you money absolute fuck you money she has so much money that she is able to loan money to king matthias for the war effort and she does this from about 1601 now Ference, on the other hand Things aren't going great for him. So it's not clear whether he has an accident or an incident of some kind, or he has some sort of debilitating or degrading condition. And because he starts having this excruciating pain in his legs, which he never recovers from. Like by 1603, he is permanently disabled. He has no use of his legs. And on the 4th of January, 1604, Florence passes away at the age of 48. But knowing that his end was nigh, Florence entrusts his heirs and his widow to Giorgio Thurzo, which honestly uh, may have not been the best idea, because Giorgio, who also happens to be a cousin of Elizabeth, kind of made a whole career of stabbing people in the back, so... Again, not the best of choices. So, like, within a relatively short time period, Elizabeth loses not only her husband, but also her brother. Like, they pass away in, like, a pretty close time frame. And her oldest son, he's only, like, six years old at this point, and so she has to become the regnant. I mean, she's already ruling anyway. Like, she was already doing it. But now she's officially the regent for her son because he can't rule, he can't be regent yet, he can't rule in his own stead. You know, so she's, you know, doing it for him. And, you know, I don't know how close she was with her brother and I don't know how close she was romantically with Ferenc, but, uh, you know, it's going to be tough to lose two constants in your life, especially in a short time period. Also, in addition, furthermore, it also cuts down two streams of revenue. So she doesn't have income, you know, from Ferenc being the Black Knight of Hungary. And she also doesn't have any income coming from the estate of her brother. Because he had no son to inherit. And, you know, patriarchal bullshit. All of his estate goes to, like, some distant cousin instead of, you know, his nephew. Which, on the family tree... Definitely seems like a closer branch. And yeah, so basically everything that's her husband's is now her son's. Technically. Technically. But yeah, so she's governing in his stead anyway because yeah, you know, he's six. Probably best not to let a six-year-old rule a state or half a country. I just feel like... Not the most reasonable of options, to be honest. So yeah, she's a widow and she has fuck you money. 
and she has huge estates. Again, strategically located on the way to Vienna, between here and here. Just like a really good place to have. And yeah, everyone thinks because she's a widow, she's going to be a soft target without a man to protect her. And um, she's like, <laughs> absolutely fucking not. So in 1606, this count comes in and tries to like seize one of her estates. And she's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers. And direct quote, she says, I will not keep silent. I will let no one take my property. I just wanted you to know this. Do not think I shall leave you to enjoy it. You will find a man in me. Basically what she's saying is, fuck around and find out. I think love the idea of Elizabeth Bathory just doing the equivalent of being just like, fuck around and find out, bitch. Oh my god, Elizabeth Bathory and Alice <laughs> of Battenberg, my two favourite ghosts now. These are my ghosts. Oh, I love them so much. But yeah, she's this wealthy, powerful, strong woman in an era where that really wasn't comfortable accepting those features in a woman. And so at the same time as, you know, she's being attacked, she is putting pressure on King Matthias to pay back what some may call substantial debts, considering she's been funding the Crown's wars for, I don't know, a couple of bloody decades. And then at the same time, uh, her nephew, or is it cousin, she has a relative, another relative, who is the Prince of Transylvania, and he is gunning for King Matthias's throne. And, you know, generally, I think his name is Gorgon, or Gorbin. It's a G name. So generally, wouldn't have really been, like, a massive contender, um, except with Elizabeth's power and money behind him, he becomes a force to be reckoned with. Because Elizabeth is a force to be reckoned with. And naturally, she has to be stopped. Now, for about a year, Giorgio Thurzo, who, thanks to letters from his wife who consistently forgot to write in code, that he was spreading rumours around sort of the clergy about Elizabeth. Because who are people going to listen to? They're going to listen to, you know, men of the cloth. So he has them spreading rumours about her, right? And so he shows up on the 29th of December, 1610. And he interrupts the Countess's dinner. He storms in, interrupting her eating. But like, they always say that they stepped in on her and she was torturing a girl, which... You know, she wasn't, she was in the middle of her dinner. <laughs> like, it's, okay, no. Like, but Giorgio wanted to catch her in an unsuspecting moment. Because, you know, he was a cousin and a member of the lower nobility. And luckily enough, the Palatine of Hungary. The Viceroy. Basically, kind of like the Chief Justice. And so... He decided when he took that role, he was going to gun after Elizabeth. Very helpful, in fact, that he had been entrusted with her care. And so in he goes. Because he wants what she has. 
He wants her money, he wants her land, and he wants her power. So he gets this Palatine gig, and it comes with power and wealth, just not as much as she has. Because he has already started these rumours swirling around for a long time. He has been building his quote-unquote body of evidence, and by that I mean bunch of hearsay, mainly revolving around her doing dodgy shit, occult things, which, if you know anything about this time period, people were either talking about the occult, or looking into the occult, or studying the occult, or learning many occult things in which to avoid the occult. It's, it's basically an aerobarous of occultism. It's just a weird fascination, even today. Like, think of how many true crime shows we watch or listen to. But we're not going to go out and commit a crime. At least not a big one. Maybe a small one. Like, breaking one of those weird laws, like, don't walk a duck up the high street at noon. You know, one of them, because that's just funny. Although, what led to that law being written? You know, how much of an issue was a duck in the high street? So Giorgio shows up with uh, his dudes, he's flanked, and is supported for no reason whatsoever, a certainly not a crippling debt, is King Matthias. So he has sent Giorgio in to investigate, and so he rounds up all the servants and separates them from Elizabeth. And she is surrounded by the gentry and the nobility, and she is like, what the actual fuck is going on? You want to help me out a bit here? And so Giorgio spends a year just like collecting witness statements. The majority of which just feels like hearsay because a lot of it is like, this happened and I saw this body and there was like totally a body over there. And some people are missing. All the while she's under house arrest. Now, people are like, there's people missing. Yeah, there's been wars constantly for the past couple decades. Like, people are going missing. You're being raided. Like, yes, of course people are missing. That's something that happens in this time period, you know? Slavery isn't new also. Like, people got kidnapped. But yeah, there there isn't even, like, a record of missing people. And this is a time where people are writing shit down, you know? But while she is under house arrest anyway, as I should say, Giorgio's wife goes raiding the countess's rooms. So she is looking for jewellery and clothes and all of this stuff, right? So she basically goes in and steals all her nice shit. Like, yeah, that that seems appropriate. But yeah, this year is spent collecting these witness statements. And by collecting witness statements, I mean horrific torture, which, as we know, generally doesn't hold up in a court of law now. But eventually this trial goes ahead. I say trial. It's not really a trial because Elizabeth isn't allowed to speak. She doesn't have any sort of advocate. There is not like a counsel. It's basically Georgia going in and telling the court what he believes to be true. And so he gives this fucking laundry list of just absolute gore. He's talking about girls between the ages of 10 and 14 being burnt with candles, having needles poked into them tongs, their feet being burnt with hot irons, searing rods. This is a 
particularly graphic one, so skip forward about 15 seconds. Now, searing hot rods pushed into the vagina. Like, Then she has freezing water torture where they're thrown in. And then there's just abuse of servants. So according to this testimony, she kept her servants chained up every night so tightly that their hands turned blue and blood was just spurting out of the wrists, right? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like a really good way to get stabbed in your sleep or have your morning tea poisoned. I'm just saying. So yeah, there's talks of her beating a servant so loudly that neighbouring monks are just like, are literally complaining and throwing clay pots at her. Of course she also strangles a servant to death with a silk scarf, a la the Turkish way. Another thing she supposedly did was stitch her victim's lips and tongues together. And she makes her servants sit and bathe in baths of nettles. Beating victims to the point where there's so much blood they had to use ash from the fireplaces to clean it up and absorb it all. She also smeared girls in honey and left them outside to be devoured by the ants and the bees and the flies. She starved them and if they were thirsty she forced them to drink their own urine. And what I think is like the weirdest slash creepiest one actually is she killed a bunch of servants and then stuffed them under a bed. Five of them, stuffs them under a bed and then feeds the corpses as if they're still alive. Then of course we have uh, the Iron Maiden. Of course the Iron Maiden comes into this. So she would place victims within the Iron Maiden, a device supposedly provided to her by her deceased husband, the Black Knight of Hungary. Finally, we have the bathing in blood. Now, this information is mainly received from four servants who were tortured horrifically. They had these four female servants, I might add, out of 300 people questioned. 300 and they had four. So they were all elderly, elderly servants, all old women. They were seen as accomplices, right? They had their fingers torn off with iron tongs. And once, you know, they had no fingers, their bodies were thrown into large fires. And there was supposedly one male accomplice um, who, because his man was less involved somehow, he he had a, you know, a, a more considerate death, which was being beheaded. They decapitated him before then throwing him into the fire. And a lot of the nobles, they just got to go. Okay. So basically no one gets to cross-examine and all of the information is given via fucking torture under duress. So let's break this down a little bit, shall we? So first of all, the Iron Maiden. Um, lots and lots of talk of this Iron Maiden. Um, except the Iron Maiden wasn't a real thing. 
Just ask any medievalist, like anyone. They will confirm this for you. It's fake. It was invented by the Victorians. Because, you know, Victorians ruin everything. So it's really weird that this device gets brought up so much. Because uh, this is one of the things I think is just tacked on over time. But anyway, you know what else Erzabed is accused of? Breathing in blood. Now, bathing in the blood of virgins to keep you young and beautiful? Um, n- no, no. Uh, bollocks to that, because the one thing that always seems to slip the mind of whoever discusses this is that blood coagulates really fucking quickly. Like you're talking five to eight minutes before it starts getting all like sticky and gloopy. So bathing in it wouldn't really work. It's sticky. It's not as it looks in the movies. It's like, oh, it's a thing of blood. You need water and stuff to it. But if she's wanting this for, I don't know, occult reasons, she's going to want this pure. So on top of this, like being the type of nobility she was, bathing that much, not really... Not really a huge deal. That's why they have their chemises, you know? So they don't have to bathe so much. So yeah, also, also, she's supposed to have personally tortured all of these young girls. But here's the thing. The blood countess is a bloody countess, right? She wouldn't actually torture people, you know? She's too high up, she wouldn't get her hands dirty. If you're noble, you have other people to do that for you. So, even if she was torturing people, mm, which is, eh, she would have her servants do her for her. Like, she would have a jailer or, you know, someone in charge of that. That would be their specific duty. And here's the thing as well. This is no different to what men of the same power would be doing in that era. If there's a reason to torture somebody, again, not condoning it, but if there was, you know, they would have someone else do it. Because it's below their pay grade, you know? And weird that nobody brings it up so much when men do it, but because this is a woman, it's somehow worse. So on top of this, on top of all of this, this is a time period where people are writing shit down and she is supposedly what murdered what 600 girls yeah there's not one letter of complaint like if there were complaints and there were complaints they're written down like this is a time period where if somebody was injured or harm or you take somebody's goose or chicken, you know, there would be a complaint. There would be a lodgement. It would be written somewhere. Someone would have gone to a notary. Somebody would have gone to the somebody higher up. They would have bypassed her, right? And the reason they say it's like 600 girls is because of this supposed book. Now, this is like hearsay upon hearsay because it's basically the servant coming forward, this witness, and being like, I heard this other servant say they saw this book with had like 650 names of all the girls that the Countess killed. Uh, 
yeah, yeah, except no one claims to have seen the book themselves. No one can provide any evidence of this book. And on top of that, nobody mentioned the book until this chick comes in. And this is going to shock you all, but at not one point during the entire year he's doing this investigation, does he find this fucking book? So yeah, we have no book with this list of supposed names and there are no official records of these supposed missing girls. So like, wouldn't you want to get the testimony of the nobles whose daughters are missing? Because remember, she killed everybody. She wasn't discriminatory in her murderous ways, allegedly. So where were they? Like, this is a time where betrothals were happening, you know? Where did these girls go? Where is the sort of notification of this dissolving and this dissolving and this fella marrying someone else? Like, where's the information? Where are the reports of these missing girls? Like, peasants, eh, you know, you can understand somebody not mentioning that. But fucking nobility? They're going to go to somebody after, like, the third girl goes missing. Like, don't you think they would have made a bigger deal? Like, there's this sort of account that the nobles went, well, like, 30 girls over the course of, like, 20 years went missing. Yeah, fair enough. Because this is a time before penicillin in the Western world. You know? Like, people died. (laughs) Infections. You get an infection, you're fucked. Like, you know what I mean? So this nettle situation, so the thing about the nettles and the needles and stuff like that, a lot of that actually aligns with folk medicine, like contemporary folk medicine of this era. So again, it's like this information's been pulled and twisted. And these numbers throughout the trial, they jump. It's like 400 here, 650 there, 30 there. Like it just depends and it just moves around. And, again, we don't have any names. We don't have one name of one girl she supposedly killed. Not one. And this is gentry. Even if they are the lower gentry, like, we should have at least one name. So back to Giorgio and his evidence collecting. Even though he apparently showed up while she was in the midst of torturing someone... It still took him 24 hours to actually find any evidence and bring it forward. Like, what's weird is that over the course of this year, nobody is found. Not one body. Like, if you've killed 650 people, you know, you're going to find graves, mass graves. Because, you know, if you're going to dig a pit, you're going to dig a big pit, you know? Lest we forget, incinerating bodies, it's tough. You have to get the fire to like a certain point and if she's burning as many bodies as she's trying to, that's, that's not going to work. Like she's not going to get to that point. Like that's a lot of work. Did she even have enough servants for that? Like that's, yeah, you know, and these graves, like you would find mass graves. 
if Giorgio Thurzo did find these bodies, they would need to be provided to the relatives because this is an era where everyone's really fucking religious. So they would need to be interred in hallowed ground. But again, no fucking record of that either. So this trial is basically a big show because it's not like an official trial. And although King Matthias is like behind it, sort of, because, you know, if she ends up being, you know, guilty, then he can basically write off his debt to her. But the thing is, as well, because of the pressure Matthias is getting, he ends up asking for an official trial for three years. And for three years, nothing happens. Luckily, Elizabeth is smart enough to write to the nobility, to write to her family, and to get all of her ducks in a row. She ends up dividing her estates and her wealth, you know, all about to her family to ensure that they are protected. Everything was divvied out because they didn't want a revolt from the Batheries especially because they couldn't quite prove Elizabeth was guilty and they couldn't execute her because that would have been a whole fucking opera and would have caused a war. So they just put her under house arrest. That being said, Georgie is still trying to send her to like a nunnery because he just wants her out of the way. He doesn't want her around. But yeah, she's been working to get everything sorted, the estates, her inheritance, possessions, all going to where they need to go. And so by January 1611, Elizabeth officially is put under house arrest. Now, Georgie, he writes that Elizabeth is bricked up in her room, but with like a little hole at the bottom to like put stuff through. Like, like a little hole for food. Doesn't seem that fun. Does seem like a little bit of a prison cell. Now, he writes that that's what happened, but there are these other accounts that suggest that she literally just is under house arrest and she's able to walk around, but she's effectively guarded. She has, like, like, like a bodyguard, except they're in charge of keeping her in the castle, you know? And probably not the worst instance she could have. I mean, probably for someone who's used to having their own agency and independence, not super fun. But yeah, she's just kicking about her house. Well, her castle. So not, again, not the worst instance. Now, on the 20th of August, 1614, she complains to said bodyguard that her hands are cold. And he's like, go lie down, you're fine. And so she goes, she lies down. And when they go to check on her the very next morning... She's dead. And the Countess Elizabeth Battery passed away in her sleep at the age of 54. Now, Elizabeth, her body is allowed to be removed and interred with her family crypt. Which is interesting because for someone who was apparently such a cruel and horrific monster who did all of these awful, terrible things... Her body was allowed to be interred on hallowed ground. Which generally shouldn't have been allowed if she was, you know, 
the demonic wench they claimed she was. Then, over the years, through time and history, Elizabeth Battery's story just weaves its way, grabbing bits of folklore and horror as it goes. Whispers here, a little embellishment there, until she becomes known as the horrific Blood Countess, perpetuated by patriarchal standards and abuse throughout the fucking centuries. Because, of course, being an independent strong woman at any point in history means that your reputation will not be accepted or protected by the pale and stale male historians, and so the reputation or personhood, or any person who does not fall into the neat little box of womanhood has to be tarnished, twisted, or destroyed. And so ends the story of Bathory Elizabeth Itchid. And what did we learn today? The fact that a level-headed wife and mother was also a competent manager of massive wealthy estates, continued to be a powerful public figure instead of retiring in mourning after her husband's untimely demise was the downfall of this intelligent, strong-willed woman in 17th century Hungary. And also, in addition, furthermore, we are yet again reminded that the easiest thing to gain and the hardest thing to lose is a reputation. Elizabeth Bathory was framed. So, there we go. That is today's episode. Don't forget you can follow me on all of the socials. I'm on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um, I do have a website. I promise to update it soon. It's getting there. Remember, if you want to come see me at my show, that's two weeks time-ish. Under two weeks time. I should probably write that out. I feel like that's a good idea. Let's do that. And of course, vote for me and the listener's choice. Um, before I leave as well, I am going to give you some recommendations for watching. You all need to go watch Practical Magic. It's a palate cleanser. It really is. For listening, I'm going to go with the Buried Bones podcast. And for reading, let's head a classic with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now that we have our options, I am going to wish you good night. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye bye.